is. I don't fucking cackle, you <laughs> nightmare of a god. Now who's cackling? Exactly. Who's fucking cackling now? It's Friday, September the 13th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darach, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Designated Area 51 Survivor, and with me today is my fellow Dutch News Contributing Editor and Flying Flamingo, Molly Quell. Later on, we'll be joined by Master of Disorder, Pal Peters, who will be discussing the latest skeletons to emerge from the very ornate and handsomely restored royal cupboards. Where um, where is Paul today? Why is he not here? He's class in the morning right now. He's, on uh, yeah, so he's joining he, us later. He's actually studying, uh, oh, which he's makes a nice doing change. Doing something, yeah, yeah. respectable. He's for doing us. something for his career, which yes. uh, is, is something I remember from long ago. Is he um, is he going to also be joining you in jail for being arrested at Area Fifty One? Uh, I think possibly. Yeah. Well, this is um, uh, we've uh, yeah yeah. Your job title mentions a number of things that happened over the week, so I think you're going to have to unpack this a bit. Okay, unpack this. So the, the first thing that happened was obviously two, uh, there's news that two Dutch people have been arrested at Area 51, which yes. uh, I think you're probably a better place to explain mm. to the listeners than me. Area 51 is an Air Force base in Roswell, New Mexico, yeah. where supposedly they're keeping all the aliens that have landed on Earth. Yes. And uh, at some point in the recent past, uh, someone famous-ish on the internet decided that they were going to storm Area 51 and, I don't know, free the aliens or see some stuff yeah. or whatever. And this, of course, has turned into a thing. And apparently two Dutch YouTubers have mm-hmm. flown to New Mexico for the event um, and promptly got themselves arrested for <laughs> trespassing onto, right. yeah, military property. So they're off to a great start there. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it can only get better. Yeah, yes. so, two, so two terminally gullible Dutch people have basically bought plane tickets to go over to New Mexico and are now, yeah. And uh, to be honest, they're probably going to put up videos about it that will make more yeah. money on the single video than you and I will make in a year. Yeah, so, by yeah. the fact that they, they were arrested by the deep state and uh, they'll put they'll do what these people always do, which is they'll put up videos on YouTube saying they've been censored and no one can uh, yes. yeah, no one can listen to what they say, even exactly. though it's on a YouTube channel yes. with 1.5 million subscribers. I mean, if we're not careful, the New York Times <laughs> is just going to give them a column. So, yeah. <laughs> but um, you were a, de- a designated survivor because there's also a designated survivor story. Yes, there's a great designated survivor story, which is that the Dutch government has decided it should have a designated survivor. As it should. As it should, yes, just in case uh, any terrorists try to blow up the government um, on Prinsjesdag. Right. Uh, You know, which which at least will will be a very um, colourful explosion because everyone's wearing those nice hats. Hats, yeah. Yeah. But uh, they they decided that not all the men, somebody should be left behind in case case of this kind of terrible calamity. Yeah. Um, And of course, uh, there was only one candidate for that, wasn't there? And that person is Steph Block. (laughs) Steph Block. (laughs) Steph, the indestructible Steph Block yes. will be the one last man standing. Um, and it's extra funny because, of course, one would think that they would make the uh, whereabouts of the designated survivor <laughs> a secret because, you know, yes. if you then also kill the designated survivor, there's no government left. Yeah. But, you know, it's the Netherlands, so they're very transparent. So yeah. Steph Block will be in Strasbourg. They said he's going to be in Strasbourg. Not just that, but they've published pretty much his full itinerary his full as well. Itinerary. They said exactly how he's going to get there. He's going to fly from Brussels. Yeah. So and if anyone if anyone left over from ISIS is listening, yeah. that, that's where Steph Block's going to be. That's where he's going to be. Yeah. And in case you uh, weren't sure you could identify Steph Block, he's like seven foot seven. <laughs> so you can just always find him in a crowd. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah, that, that, that 
was that. And uh, yes, and uh, I gave you the title of Flying from Ningo, which re- relates to another story this week, mm. which we're uh, not we're going to talk, discuss in great... Because yeah. it's Brexit, and we're trying Brexit. not to talk Again, about we're it. we're trying not to talk about Brexit, but it's just... Uh, you kind of forget, I think, when you look at the Brexit drama on uh, on the news, that this is an actual thing that's happening to real people. Yeah, no, it some, feels like a reality show. Yeah. It really does. It but, feels like, like Love Island or something. Yeah, but this week they... Or Hate Island, they, maybe. <laughs> I really don't want to see Boris Johnson in a bikini. <laughs> they prorogued, as the British like to call it, because God forbid you guys just use a normal word for shutting down Parliament. No, um, and of course, this caused a lot of drama because it's a long period of time and whatever. We're not going into all the mm. Brexit details. Um, but the what is he? The president, the speaker, of, the the speaker, speaker of Parliament. Yeah. The Speaker of Parliament was chastising his uh, colleagues for being a bit rough and tumble with the person whose official job it is to like officially close down. Yeah, who's, a, who's called Black Rod. Who's called Black Rod, well. which is amazing. Yes. Um, and he shouted a number of great things at people, including, <laughs> I don't give a flying flamingo <laughs> what you think, yes. which is the best insult of all time. Super. Very parliamentary insult. So yeah, so that was colourful. Yes. Um, and of course, now we have this weird situation where um, a court in Scotland has ruled that it was illegal to yes. prorogue parliament. So we have uh, a parliament which is prorogued, even though a court has said it can't be. Um, so we have kind of Schrodinger's parliament. It's both sitting and not sitting at the same time. Do you know what I'm very glad about? That this is not a Brexit podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, we, we would just never be able to stop. Anyway, it's not. So uh, so let's move on. Let's to move the... on to the, the real stories. I have to say, I think we should, when I look at Brexit, I just think everyone in the Netherlands should feel incredibly privileged. They live in a country where people have got the time and energy to get hot under the collar about you know things like the royal furniture yeah. and um, yeah, renovating the, the Twitter camera. Yeah, because the only reason <laughs> that this is a scandal is because the country is not actually just falling apart around <laughs> you. Yeah. Um, so speaking of which, Paul wrote us some opaf, which we're going to read now since he's not joining us until later. And yeah. it is a renovation related scandal, yes. which yeah. is the second best kind after bondages related scandal. Mm. So what is our opaf of the week, Gordon? So the opaf of the week is uh, the latest episode in uh, the ongoing uh, much um, more sedate soap opera, which is the renovation of the Trader Kama. Yes. Uh, Ellen van Loon, who is the architect who was sacked after MPs accused her of megalomania um, because her initial design uh, was a bit elaborate, but she was still paid millions of euros in compensation. She gave an interview with NRC Handelsblatt this week and she felt said um, how unfair she thought it was that she was being treated. She complained about the um, the... She complained about the picture that the MPs were painting of her and said that her design was in fact very sober and efficient um, and showed some artist's impressions of uh, one of the more controversial elements, which was the indoor tropical garden. Um, but on Thursday, Alchemin Dachblatt released some other artist's impressions uh, from documents that the architectural firm sent to the Trader Camera, which showed that there was indeed a tropical garden. Um, oh, so she was claiming that there was not actually a tropical garden. Yeah, she was claiming that the, the, the label tropical garden I think was, was misleading and yeah. it, was, uh, you know, it was something much more modest. Yeah. Uh, but actually the, the documents that the newspaper obtained uh, suggested that uh, that wasn't quite the case either. Um, it showed two huge palm trees inside the building which blocked the view from several windows. I'm not... <laughs> I'm still just... I don't fucking care about this, man. <laughs> but I don't. I don't understand... Like, putting a palm tree inside a building I don't think is like... 
It's not the most sensible thing. Well, yeah, but it's also, like, not that big of a deal. I mean, like, they have all... Any botanical gardens you ever go to is going to have an indoor garden area, right? Mm. And they have, like, a nice little glassy greenhouse space, and there's a fucking palm tree. And, like, it's fine. I mean, if you don't like the palm tree thing, fine. But I don't think... I'm not buying into this argument that it's, like, somehow so ostentatious (laughs) that she should have been sacked over it. I suppose the thing here is that she wasn't asked to design a tropical garden. She was asked to design a parliament building. Yeah, but, I mean... But I'm assuming that every moment, every space in this building is not something that's going to be used for, like... I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Like, leisure I mean, and relaxation. Yeah. Uh, and like fun. lots of buildings have atriums that have like some trees in the fucking middle. Mm. Like I just don't think it's that big of a deal. But yeah. fair enough. But it, it seems to have kept the... Uh, it blocks a window, which, the, yeah. you know, we all know is like not acceptable in Dutch culture. So that's really, I think, where the <laughs> all have yeah. yeah. And then they'll be, putting, they'll, they'll be putting curtains up next. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> you can't have that. Yeah. But it gives the media something to talk about yes. uh, while they're waiting for the parliament to come back from recess. Exactly. So, so um, it's giving us lots of good uh, discussion topics. Indeed. Well, this week we've got news of a milestone verdict on euthanasia, another twist in the Geert Wilders courtroom saga, a potential reprieve for the people of Groningen, and how the Dutch football team put their old rivals to the sword. In our discussion, we asked why the King's furniture became a burning issue this week. Yeah, our discussion is also going to be about renovation work. Yeah, it seems to be the hot topic. It does. Yeah. A Dutch doctor was found not guilty of murder this week for performing euthanasia on an elderly patient with a severe case of Alzheimer's. It is the first case to be brought against a doctor since the passage of the Termination of Life on Demand Review Act, which I feel like the title sounds better in Dutch, but we're Mm. using the translated version, that legalized euthanasia in the Netherlands in 2002. The case centers on a 74-year-old woman who was living in a nursing home where the doctor in question worked. Following her diagnosis, the patient, not the doctor, with a degenerative disease in 2012, the woman had signed an advanced directive stating that if she was admitted to a nursing home with dementia, she was to be euthanized. However, following her admittance, she gave conflicting statements as to whether or not she wanted the procedure. Nursing home administrators said that the woman sometimes said that she wished to die, but other times said she was not ready. In consultation with two other doctors and the woman's family, she died by euthanasia in 2016. The 68-year-old doctor, identified only as Catherine A., was brought up on charges after the committee, which investigates all cases of euthanasia, said that she hadn't properly verified that the patient wanted to die. Right, so this so the procedure here, just to be clear, is that uh, whenever a patient requests euthanasia and it's granted by the doctor, there's then review. There's always a review sure about every legally, single every yeah, single case. Legally compliant. Yes. And in this case, they decided to uh, that, that, that there was a case for a prosecution, yes. but they weren't actually seeking any punishment against. No, it. the prosecutor yeah. said that they didn't think that the doctor acted maliciously, um, yeah. but that she had like not done her due diligence in ensuring that the euthanasia was what the patient wanted. Right. So there was too much ambiguity really yeah. about the patient's wishes. Exactly. Um, which is related to her condition, of course. Um, yeah. And this is, but this has had quite an impact on doctors. Um, uh, it uh, has. Um, specialized end-of-life clinics have reported an uptick in referrals since this case was first brought. The census is that doctors are afraid of being charged. They don't want the responsibility. Um, this ruling clarified some things, namely that if a person is seriously demented, as long as they have previously expressed the wish to die and they meet the other criteria, that euthanasia is an option. So this, it was very clear in the court ruling that yeah. that the judge said that, yeah, if you're a person with a severe case of Alzheimer's, you're now no longer able to make this decision for yourself. Mm-hmm. So we have to take the decision that you made 
when you were still like capable of making this decision. So right. it seems like it's a pretty clear. So it sets a kind of precedent yeah. there for yeah, where a patient has uh, reached such an advanced stage of dementia, they can't yeah. really make clear decisions anymore. Yeah. That their previous decisions are still yeah. then valid or take precedence. And even more so, there's like two ways to be found sort of like not guilty in the Dutch like legal system. You mm. can sort of be found not guilty because they feel like there was no, there wasn't enough evidence. Like if I if I shoot you, mm. um, and they say there's not enough evidence to prove that you that I was the one that shot you. That's like one version of not guilty. Mm-hmm. But she was found by this like higher standard which basically says that there's no um that their charges never should have been brought in the first place right. so like for example like in my the case of me shooting you which of course is my favorite thing to talk which about now something that's on your mind a bit too 100%. much 100 it would be as if like they basically said well you're not you know we have evidence that gordon isn't dead so mm-hmm. you can't possibly charge molly with murder it's like a higher standard of finding somebody okay. not guilty yeah, so, so it's a, a really whether... like sort of very strong i think take from the judiciary that, yeah. you know, you have to, you know, if, if a person has is suffering from dementia, that what they wanted prior to be, when they became so incapable of making their own decisions is the decision that's going to be moved forward with. Yeah. It's the issue here maybe that as well, that um, when this law was framed, it was as an exemption from the law of murder yes. for doctors. So yeah. therefore, if you decide that the doctors have broken the rules, your exactly. only option is it's to, to charge them with murder. murder, which seems pretty confrontational. Yeah. You know? yeah. Pretty sorry. yeah but, I think they're going to have to do something about yeah. changing exactly the way the regulations are written for this. But it, that's not surprising because the, you know, this law was passed in 2002 the original law um and you know the perception of how euthanasia operates in this country has changed quite a bit right originally the intention was basically people who have a terminal illness who are going to die within a few months and are in a lot of pain can have euthanasia but that definition has been expanded as more and more people have said yeah we want control over how we end our lives Hmm. so yes you think euthanasia will continue to be a running a running issue in uh, yeah it is possible that the prosecutor can appeal so maybe we're going to see that at some point but although i i got the sense that that's probably not the case Gas production in the northern province of Groningen could end eight years ahead of schedule if global warming carries on its current course. Oh, great. So instead of having earthquakes, we'll all just drown. Yeah. Yeah. Economic Affairs Minister Erik Wiebes said that next year's extraction volume would be 11.8 billion cubic metres rather than 15.8 billion, and all going well, the last gas could be taken out of the ground in 2022, uh, provided there aren't any exceptionally cold years. Um, Wiebes said that if it was an unusually cold winter, they might need to tap the gas fields again. It's good news for the long-suffering people of Groningen, who've suffered around 80 million euros worth of damage to their homes as a result of the ground settling after gas extraction, and another 17,000 cases are still going through the system. The government's mining inspectorate has described the situation as a national crisis. So what is the government going to do to make up for the lost revenue that they're going to lose? Yeah, it does leave a big hole in the accounts. Uh, around about, uh, they've calculated 1.9 billion over the next three years. Uh, so they are starting to look at uh, ways of um, uh, trying to reclaim uh, that money or make up the difference. One of the things they're going to do is uh, actually get companies like Shell to start paying tax. Well, that sounds like a great plan. <laughs> it's good, good they finally got around to doing that. Yeah. yeah. It emerged in May that the multinational company hadn't paid any corporation tax for years, and that's partly because there's a rule that allows it to deduct any losses in any other part of the world from its Dutch tax bill. Yeah, they should do something about that. So they should, it's really high time they did something about that. And the cabinet's pledged to close that loophole, which experts say will raise an extra $250 million a year. Uh, but Vibus has also said the government will have to pay Shell and Exxon, who uh, jointly um, run the end, uh, the company that uh, uh, runs the, uh, the, the gas, gas extraction. Fields, yeah, yeah. Uh, he'll have to pay them. They'll pay them around. They'll have to pay them around ninety million in compensation yeah. for their lost income. So, yep, it's a complicated case. It is a complicated case. 
Speaking of complicated cases, here we go. Tuck in, guys. In the ongoing saga of the questionably quaffed far-right politician Gert Wilders and, I don't know, the rest of the country or whatever, there was a bunch more drama this week and last week and previous weeks, but everybody was on vacation. So, an update. Wilders is back in court for his Minder chant. Uh, The backstory there is that following the 2014 municipal elections, Wilder asked a crowd of supporters if they wanted more or less Moroccans in the country. More or fewer Moroccans in the country. This thing is so difficult to translate because of this difference in how you use the word more or less in in English versus Dutch. But that's a side problem. Anyway, the crowd responded, of course, Minder, because they're PVV supporters, meaning fewer in Dutch, and the public prosecutor charged him with inciting racial hatred. He was convicted in 2016, but not giving any sort of um, sentence or, or other punishment as a sort of compromise. Wilders, of course, being Wilders, mm-hmm. uh, decided that he was going to appeal. The appeals case started before the summer break, but then, like everyone else, the entire court system packed its peanut butter and Hageslag and headed to terrorize France for three weeks before returning <laughs> last week to resume the trial. Then shit got real when RTL News unearthed emails between the Justice Ministry and the public prosecutor, which made it seem like the ministry had encouraged the prosecutor to pursue charges. Of course, these two entities should be independent, as, you know, trials shouldn't be politically motivated in a democracy. So, of course, Wilders' lawyer requested that the whole case be tossed out. The judges, however, denied this request, but they said they would hear evidence of the accusations as part of the trial. On Monday, Wilders alleged that the prosecutor had lied to the court, he was very uh, fiery and brimstony, Mm. when it said that there was no collusion and basically claimed everything was a conspiracy against him, which, judging from the emails that were partially released on Monday, could very well be. The prosecutor, for their part, argued that the decision to bring charges was made prior to these emails being exchanged, and once it decided to press charges, it of course informed Justice Minister Ivo Opstelta, um, who is the former Justice Minister, not the current one, um, because, of course, he was going to have to deal with the political fallout of this shit show. Do we have any questions? When is this going to end? Never. <laughs> there is a verdict on October the 11th. October the 11th, yes. there will be a verdict. Um, yeah. So today they're back in court and then they rest for a week and then there's a couple more days of the yeah. prosecutor presenting. So it's going to keep being in the news. And in theory, there's a verdict on October 11th. But of course, whatever that verdict is could again be appealed. So, you know, yes. we're, this is just us indefinitely reporting yeah. on this. So we'll end up in the Supreme Court and probably, I don't know, Area 51 uh, Tribunal or something like that. We could send Wilders to Area 51. We that could. would be great. Yeah. Yeah. So now, of course, this has become a real political scandal on top of that. And there's a bunch of politicians calling for an inquiry. Wilders himself called for an inquiry in June. So yeah. before He's the constantly been calling for inquiries. Yeah. He, he said that, uh, he tweeted that the whole thing should stop now. So, yeah, There should be course. an inquiry and the government should resign and yeah, of who knows what else? And, and probably even Optelson should go in jail. And that there's <laughs> yeah. that there's aliens at Area 51. Yes. So it's the usual Wilder stuff. Yeah, but, but this is whole Wilder's uh, strategy of just trying to keep this going for as long as possible because this is where he makes his headlines now. It's he doesn't. True. He's not really. He has no influence at all in the political arena. Yeah. So for as long as he can keep turning up in the courtroom and being the victim, it's he'll true. continue to get in the telegraph. All right. So we have a we have a we have a surprise joining from Paul. Yes. Paul is Paul is. Has graced us with his presence, <laughs> which is just mainly because we started recording far yeah, later late. than we were supposed to. Of course, we're running late. As we Gordon was late. Let's just point out who the late one was in this situation. <laughs> All right, so we are moving on to MH17. Yes, 
A potentially key witness in the MH17 case has been released by Ukraine in a prisoner swap deal with Russia. Uh, that raised concerns with the joint investigation team into the MH17 crash that they wouldn't get the chance to question... Uh, What's his name, Gordon? They wouldn't get to question Vladimir Semak mm. about what he knew about the shooting down the plane in July 2014, and uh, that was potentially significant because he played a key role in the um, air defences uh, of the Russian-backed separatists right. during the Civil War. So, but, so was he actually involved in the shooting? He or wasn't was directly he... involved. There's no suggestion. He's not been. He's not a suspect. He's called. He's been designated a person of interest. No designated survivor. Although he did survive. Um, but he, he was quite high up in the um, in, in, in in the air force of the um, uh, yeah of, 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 of the Russian backed separatists, mm. and therefore it's likely that he knew that he knew something about you know the transportation of the missile and so on. Yeah, and also because the uh, Ukrainian separatists, they all, always. Uh, denied that they um, uh, had this book missile system. Mm -hmm. So uh, if he is involved in um, uh, in the in the air force there, then he definitely know if yeah. they have or if they don't have yeah. it. So, yeah. Yeah, important figure. So important figure. But uh, Foreign Minister and designated survivor Steph Block said that the transfer had been delayed uh, to give officials from the Dutch Prosecution Department the chance to speak to Simak, um, who was being detained for suspected terrorism offences. Um, there's a great story about apparently how he was smuggled out of Ukraine by the Secret Services while he was blind drunk. Um, <laughs> which I don't have the full That, that sounds like a very standard <laughs> procedure for... <laughs> Russian, to be honest, uh, yeah. if I was going to be smuggled out of a country, going at it blind drunk seems like a good way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, as I say, the Dutch government said it regretted that Ukraine had agreed to transfer Simak to Moscow under pressure from the Russian Federation. Yeah, yeah but it does, means that, uh, it does mean that the um, uh, relation between Ukraine and uh, Russia is... Um, uh, is improving yes. and uh, uh, this uh, prisoner swap or uh, what's it, what is it the prisoner swap? It's a prisoner swap. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's just a sign that uh, yeah on the geopolitical arena they are uh, getting in better terms um, since yeah. uh, since a couple of years. Well, you say that, but when I was at the European Court of Human Rights yesterday to follow this case that's uh, going on between Russia and Ukraine, Russia said as much, and then the Ukrainian lawyer was like. Actually, we think you guys are a bunch of jackbooted thugs. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure how much, how much better it's actually getting. <laughs> I mean, it is in court. You uh, you say stuff yeah. that you actually yeah. don't really mean. Actually, the most ironic part about this is that both lawyers were British. And they were really going to town on each other. And I was like, I wonder if they're from opposite feelings of Brexit. And that's oh. why they're secretly oh. mad. Oh. oh, you wanted to shout from, from the back in the courtroom, what do you feel about Brexit? Yes, and then start an actual war. An unmarried mother who claims the government played a role in forcing her to give up her newborn baby in the 1960s is suing the state for emotional damage. Trudy Schelle-Gerten is one of over 10,000 women uh, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s who gave up their child at birth. She is also the first woman to go to court over accusations of unlawful behavior by the state between 1956, when the adoption law was passed, and 1984, when abortion became legal. Um, as just a bit of back evidence, there's uh, there's this 1954, 1956 um, um, adoption law that basically said that, you know, if the government determines that someone is an unfit mother, they can like sort of force you to give your kid up for adoption. And right. basically this was interpreted to mean anyone who's an unwed mother was mm -hmm. unfit. Schelle Hertzen claims that the care for unmarried mothers at the time was focused on separating the mothers and the children and that the child protection agency, Rod for Kinderbescherming, also ignored her repeated and expressed wish to keep and raise her child. 
what was done to me and my son is disgraceful and that is the main reason I am going to court. Okay, so what is she actually asking the court to do? She's at, according to her lawyer, she wants there to be an inquiry um, into the Ostans mooters, or distance mothers as they are known, and that she wants the government to accept responsibility for its role in what happened. Um, her lawyer stressed when I interviewed her about this case uh, earlier this week that she was not asking for money, that that wasn't, mm. she, didn't, she didn't want compensation, she wanted an admission of guilt on the part of the government. Right. Junior Justice Minister Sandra Decker has also called for an investigation into this after it came up in a debate in Parliament about adoption um, sometime earlier this year. Yeah. So 10,000 cases. Yeah, uh, it's, I, I think the actual this. number is yeah. 13,000 mothers and 15,000 children basically wow. were involved. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's not insubstantial. No. Um, and the, the when I spoke to her lawyer this week, she was emphasizing the fact that, you know, a lot of these women are getting older in age. And so, mm-hmm. like, it's really important that something is done soon because at some point you know they're they're not they're going to start dying and they're not going to be here and they won't see any justice done for what was done to them Mm -hmm. we made plenty of snippy references in this podcast to the dutch football team uh, or the men's football team uh, for not being very good mostly mostly molly did that it was mainly molly it was almost exclusively molly actually i mean Um, am i wrong though (laughs) over the last two years you hadn't been because they failed to qualify for two tournaments in a row and had some pretty shocking results but we should give praise where it's due as well no we shouldn't we should (laughs) well i'm going to i mean they haven't committed genocide there's my praise for the dutch men's football team (laughs) well you didn't know that (laughs) yeah that might that might yet come out in a historic court case but we should give praise where it's due and last friday's 4-2 win over germany in hamburg was one of those occasions it was it was yeah uh germany went one up in the first half through sergey no no Germany went one up in the first half through Serge Gnabry after Lukas Klostermann was given far too much space at the back. And the Germans had a couple of good chances to go two up early in the second half. But then Ronald Koeman made a double substitution in the 58th minute, which made all the difference. Did he also wipe his ass with something? He didn't wipe his ass with anybody's shirt this time. No, oh, okay. he seems to have grown up hmm. Yeah, in the meantime. Uh, he introduced... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's Dick Afrikaat who hasn't grown up. He introduced Daniel Marlin and David Prepper, um, and then within a minute, Frankie de Jong equalised. There was an own goal from a corner shortly afterwards. Uh, the Germans got a bit of a, um, a lifeline when there was an absurd penalty decision shortly after that. Yeah. But it didn't matter because Marlin finished off a sweeping move, the best attacking move of the game, and then Giorgio Vernaldum, as so often, put the icing on the cake with the fourth goal in extra time. And Noronha followed up by strolling to a 4-0 victory in Estonia on Monday and they can move into a qualifying position if they win their next game at home to Northern Ireland on October the 10th. And what's going on with Max Verstappen, Gordon? I know there's some Max Verstappen news. There's always Max Verstappen news. Yeah, there's always Max Verstappen news. Uh, This time, Max uh, had another early setback at the Italian Grand Prix. He threw a temper tantrum during the race. Uh, Not during the race, no. um, He was relegated to the back of the grid, first of all. He started started from last place. Yeah, he he was kind of quite um, (laughs) sanguine about that. It was a calculated move. They they changed the engine to give him a better, um, make him more competitive in the race. But it's not allowed. It's not allowed, and it means that you have to start at the back. And he had to overtake everyone else during the race. He reckoned he, he didn't. He, could, he reckoned he could do that, but he didn't because he <laughs> ran into the back of another driver. Of course he did, the first because corner. that's what he does. He's Max Verstappen. Yeah, and by, by his own admission, that meant that the whole race plan went out of the window. So he didn't actually admit uh, that this was his fault. No, of course he didn't because he's Max Verstappen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he did, uh, and they had to go into the pits and um, uh, for, for some and repairs then he threw early a on. Tantrum. He still didn't throw a temper tantrum. He, had, he managed to move up to eighth place, but he's still 99 points to drift of Lewis Hamilton. So he's not going to win the drivers' championship. He's also only three. And 
then Charles Leclerc won the race again, which Max would not have enjoyed at all because they don't yeah. like each other much. So he has a 99-point <laughs> problem and him throwing a temper tantrum is a 97-point problem. It's a 99-point problem and, yeah, Charles Leclerc hit one. Um, <laughs> uh, but Charles Leclerc drives for Ferrari, so the Italian fans are all much happier of than course. Max Verstappen. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. And Charles Leclerc is from uh, Monaco. Yes. But basically all the other drivers live in Monaco, so yeah. uh, they're, uh, they're, they're all neighbors. They're I didn't all, even realize people were from Monaco. No, yeah, yeah. Th- th- those yeah. are these things that you you, you don't realize that there are actually people that are born in Monaco. Yeah, but yeah that's crazy. Apparently, mm-hmm. it was. And they see passports and everything. That's, apparently, it's crazy. Yeah. They probably have a more functional government than Brexit does. They probably do, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah they're, 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 they're probably well. At least they don't have a parliament that's not sitting and sitting at the same time. I mean, we don't know <laughs> that because have, what, do, what do you know about Monaco politics? Nothing at all. I guess, I'm guessing they don't have a parliament. I guess they have. There's of, royalty, right? Yeah, they, yeah they, there's, there's, a there's a royalty, and there's probably some kind of committee of bankers that decides yeah, everything or something. Like, yeah, I think, yeah. I think they call and it a cartel. Tax, <laughs> and their tax code is basically if you have more than this money, then you don't have to pay, pay taxes. Yeah. If you have more than one, so euro, it's basically how the Netherlands money. feels about you know large multinational corporations. Exactly. Yeah. If you enjoy the Dutch News Podcast and you appreciate our efforts to bring you up to date about uh, Bonnet's scandals and the royal <laughs> furniture, um, please consider backing us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. Um, we had five new patrons over the summer, wow, which was r- remarkable given that we didn't actually record any podcasts. We should do that more often. We just does not record a podcast. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, thank you to our new patrons over the summer. Uh, Erin Rulo, uh, Deborah Valentine, who is a long-term friend of the podcast. Uh, James Tute, uh, some, uh, a friend, friend of mine who's uh, backing the podcast. Thanks to you. Thanks also to Dominic Fabulik and to James Kalchenai. Um, and if you'd like to support the podcast and help us uh, to help you to make sense of Dutch news and replenish our stocks of dog food and straw <laughs> raffles, go to patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. Every once in a while, there is a uh, scandal about the royal family and money. Mm. Sometimes it's about a speedboat, a vacation home in Mozambique, a temporary office in the King's Garden or an auctioned drawing. But this week... It's about furniture. Or it could be about uh, ladies wanting to put solar panels on the roof and being denied by the <laughs> building committee. Yeah, but it wasn't actually a scandal, I think. That was just very funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just came out. That's true. We often have these scandals at this time of year as well, don't we? In that um, crucial window between every, the holidays are finished, but Parliament isn't back, so the papers yeah, so haven't got much to write about. about. There's nothing to write about, nothing to talk about. So someone goes and digs up something in the Royal Archives. Yeah, there is nothing <laughs> about budget day that's being leaked or something. So yeah, yeah. we don't have anything to talk about. <laughs> So, what is actually the story, Paul? NRC Handelsblad wrote this week about a secret deal between the government and the royal family. Between uh, 1982 and 2009, the government bought all the royal's furniture from four royal palaces for millions of euros. And even though the government pays for its maintenance, the royals still get some money for the maintenance of furniture. And on top of that, the government paid the royals uh, money for some pieces of furniture which were already (laughs) owned by the government. Okay. So there's a lot of <laughs> double payments going yeah. on here. Yeah. It's Unfunded. like the opposite of what the Dutch do with their tax system for multinational. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Now we've clarified. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let, let's unpick this a bit more. So the government decided to buy the furniture, and then there's also all the budget, furniture. All the furniture, but all the furniture, the entire inventory of the palaces. And why did it decide that the state should own the furniture that the royals actually use and sit on, and all the rest of it? But well, it goes back to 1965. Uh, Queen Juliana and Prince Bernard back then complained 
complained that their salary wasn't sufficient for them. They had to pay for the royal upkeep with their own money, as though they were financially uh, disadvantaged actually by being king. Uh, so they requested the government uh, some more money for, you know, being king. And mm. that was difficult at the time because the royal salary was a fixed amount written in, in the, the constitution. constitution. And changing this requires a two-third majority vote in parliament. And that's the other problem there because... Uh, back then there was an economic recession, the Labour Party was very powerful back then, so there was no political ground to Get increase this salary. Yeah. So a couple of years later, uh, the Prime Minister looked at this problem again and they just wanted to avoid the situation that the royals had to pay for themselves. So mm. they struck a deal with the royal family. And part of it was to let the government buy the inventory of the four royal palaces and let them pay for the upkeep and maintenance. So they didn't have to pay that themselves. Yeah. So, so it was part of a movement then to kind of depoliticize uh, how much the royals earned rather than having a fixed salary that was written into the constitution. That meant there was going to be a big political debate every time they wanted to give them a pay rise. They looked for kind of other ways to pay them that was going to be less politically sensitive. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay, and not surprisingly, at this point, the whole funding model for the royal family becomes starts to become very murky and non-transparent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at the time, uh, as I said, the economy was in recession, so and there was also a rumor in the American press that Queen Juliana was the richest woman alive. So that wasn't also very uh, <laughs> beneficial for her. Yeah, for so her not for a good look when, when, no. when, on one hand, you're the richest woman in the world, and the other hand, you're kind of begging for the government <laughs> to give you more money. Exactly. Yeah. So the government was in a tough situation. We need to solve this, but you know all the optics are very bad. So in, yeah. in order to avoid discussion about the payments, it was decided not to house all the expenses under one ministry, but divide it over all the others. Right. Mm-hmm. So it just makes it really complicated to keep yeah. track of how much money they were actually getting. Exactly. Yeah. And there, there is a nice little anecdote over here that there were some ministries ministerial officials who were who met each other at a ball and they were joking uh, to each other uh, how much are you spending for the royal family how much are you we don't know and they, they were all joking <laughs> about that yeah and this strategy is still the reason why we have so many of these discussions about this is paid for by this uh, ministry why didn't we know that uh, why is uh, the ministry of defense uh, paying for the pleasure yacht of the royal family why mm-hmm. that was all settled back then and yeah. it and was meant to be as non-transparent as possible yeah. and it still is yeah. but what it, the effect was that the ministries themselves and the civil servants all lost track of how much money the royals were getting and yeah. the royals had four different places they could go to for money yeah, so, yeah exactly and yeah. if they did, couldn't get the, rid of their bonus at one ministry yeah. they just went to another but, and, but, 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 Hang on, they didn't even need to submit bonuses, though, I, I read. This is part of this. They, um, they just got the money. They just asked for it. and. Uh, and oh, and so they didn't they even have it. to... Uh, no, they didn't have to, oh, to okay. declare receipts. Okay, then they just, just said, I, I need 10,000 for you know for, for a new set of tables and chairs, and uh, that, that, that was okay. And they just as called as a ministry official <laughs> and said, I need this money. And they said, yeah. Wow, this is this is actually what, uh, what Starbucks is doing yeah. right now without tax. <laughs> exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah, basically. So the, the government is paying for the maintenance of the furniture, but then they also give an allowance to the royals for the upkeep and replacement of the same furniture. Yeah. Uh, how do we come to that situation? Well, that's what NSA Honnesblad found out as well. It all has to do with a very sly member of the royal court, Mr. Karel von Schelle. Of course. Uh, he worked before as uh, Princess Beatrix's private secretary and was at the time when this deal was being arranged. He was ambassador in Brussels, but he mm. was asked by the royal family specifically to come back and basically represent yeah. them in these negotiations. And he, he was, was very... He was asked specifically by Beatrix, wasn't he? Because she 
she was having the palaces refurbished in preparation for her uh, you know, her mother stepping down and becoming queen. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, they needed needed to to arrange some stuff, and they she specifically hired him or asked him back, and he he was granted the, the title Grand Officer, and he was basically. Can, can I grant myself the title of Grand Officer of this podcast? You sure? No, you you can. can. We're not going to use it. No, yeah. of course not. I'm writing it in all the scripts. From out. He was basically the attorney and the guy who started negotiating with the with the government about the royal funding, and he manages to get all sorts of financial compensations for the royal family, including the maintenance funding or the allowance for the for the maintenance, even though they didn't actually own the furniture right, anymore. Right. So basically, Beatrix brought back a senior diplomat from Brussels um, on, on the royal payrolls who specifically had the job of basically making sure the government paid for her furniture exactly. as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and, and that's to pay- be honest, in her defense, if I could get away with that, I would do the same <laughs> goddamn thing. And he also arranged a lot of other uh, sorts of arrangements. And in the NSA article, which is a very fun article, there are actually two articles, so you should definitely read mm. it. Yeah. They uh, cite some uh, official memos, a uh, minister memos where one ministerial official warns the other for this guy that he's mm. very hawkish and a very tough negotiator and it's very nice to, <laughs> to read about this especially because it's written in this 1970s yeah. memo yeah, uh, format yeah. it, it, it's yeah. really really fun to, to yeah, read it's kind of very official language and he throws in the odd Latin phrase doesn't yeah. he sort of, uh, yeah, and it's basically and, like the proto yeah. Thierry Baudet is that what you're telling <laughs> me? no 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 somebody's far more competent and effective than Thierry Baudet <laughs> oh yeah and, and another thing this guy arranged was that uh, within the palace there is no distinction between private rooms and mm. official rooms because you could argue that uh, stuff that the royal family uses privately yeah. should not be funded by the government. You can argue that, but he yeah. arranged uh, that uh, the, <laughs> the, the government tried, will They not tried do to that. argue that, didn't they? The ministry officials tried to argue that uh, anything that was private um, should be paid for out of the Queen's own pocket, but uh, Franz Keller's reply was, well, nothing the Queen does is private, <laughs> exactly. none of her possessions are private either. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, yeah, this is... Uh, I don't think this could actually happen anymore, but in no. the 70s it's, it still could. So the government decided then to, to acquire all of the furniture in, in these royal palaces. And then once they made that decision, what actually happened? Well, in, it all started in the 80s with the North End and House Temple's palaces. Uh, the furniture of these palaces were all uh, bought by the government. Yeah. But these, these are known as the, the working palaces. Isn't it? Exactly. But yeah. in, mm-hmm. uh, in, the, uh, in the time of uh, Juliana, um, Juliana lived in Palais Susdijk and not yeah. in uh, any palaces in The Hague. So these mm-hmm. were all... Uh, yeah, working palaces. Yeah. Beatrix later moved to house temples, so then that became a living palace, yeah. basically. But they all started to uh, buy the furniture of these two palaces, and later it was extended to the in- inventory of uh, Hedlow and the Soosdijk palaces in 1987 and in 2009. These transactions, despite being very uh, historically important, but also very costly, were kept quiet for the Tweede Kamer and the general public. Uh, and in the agreement, it says that the furniture is part of the palaces and cannot leave the palaces without governmental permission. So yeah. everything that's in there belongs to the palace, basically. Yeah. And the taxation of the inventory of Palais at Low was done by two assessors. Mm. Uh, they basically walked around the 817 rooms of the palace for months with voice recorders. And they just basically <laughs> listed everything they saw uh-huh. and, and on the spot uh, made an estimation of the worth of these furniture and of these objects and the secretary typed these voice recordings on a computer and that was a novelty at the time they were mm-hmm. very proud of that yeah uh, and they then ended, they uh, ended up needing not one but two hard disks wow for the entire list of, of objects yeah. and furniture yeah uh, so yeah so thousands and thousands of pieces were assessed and uh, in the NSA uh, article uh, they talk about 
documents of, of hundreds and hundreds of pages, mm-hmm. each with 60 or 70 items uh, yeah. on them. So yeah, thousands and thousands of pages uh, and objects. Yeah, and what sort of items uh, were listed in these inventories? Yeah, on these thousands and thousands of pages, there are, of course, some very important historical pieces of art and pieces of furniture, but such as a Japanese cabinet, uh, silver clocks who were worth uh, 100,000 guilders, Gilded mirrors, Mm -hmm. 60,000 guilders, Mm -hmm. uh, chandeliers, but there were were also some other not so very (laughs) special items, such as. Less ornate things, like. Uh, Folding chairs. Yes. Uh, ping pong sets <laughs> worth 10 guilders uh, and baby bats. Yeah. So, yeah, so all these <laughs> items were listed. And so, so even the royal table tennis bats are in the possession of the state. Exactly. Belong, belong to the people. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this was all bought in bulk by the government. And yeah. a curator of uh, Hedlow Palace was interviewed and he was very happy with also these mm-hmm. minor objects but because when he organizes an exhibition about yeah. royal toys or something, then he has the ping-pong bats. And also, yeah, both Queen Juliana and Wilhelmina were notoriously indifferent about antiques. And, for example, whenever so- a chair broke, or the leg of a chair broke or something, yeah. they didn't hire a renovator, but they just hired a woodworker who the, just basically just like a regular carpenter. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So no special treatment for these uh, uh, sometimes ancient pieces yeah. of furniture. And some art historians <laughs> are very happy that the government bought all this because it was all stored in attics and in uh, basements. Right. And when the government bought it, all of a sudden there was this interest in preserving these items and uh, they started some renovation work and stuff like that. So yeah, now these items are preserved for so they got eternity. The, they got the right kind of st- uh, standard of care and attention. So all these kind of neglected pieces were actually restored. Yeah, and so there were a, a lot of neglected pieces. So altogether, the NSA found that the government had paid 20 million guilders uh, to the royals for the furniture, which is uh, now worth about 17 million euros. Uh, did it get a good deal? Well, actually, they did. Yeah, because the Japanese cabinet I mentioned before, it was um, valued at 70,000 guilders by the guys who were walking around with their voice mm-hmm. voice recorders. Mm-hmm. But experts now say that back then it was easily worth 250,000 guilders. Wow. And now it's uh, it's worth 3 to 4 million euros. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if the government paid 70,000 guilders for it, then mm. they have... They got a bargain. Then, then they yeah. got an excellent deal. <laughs> However, the government cannot sell it. <laughs> yes. They will never sell it. So yeah. it's it's not a good deal in terms of they will never turn this into actually real money. But no. yeah, you could argue that it is a good deal for the government. If the royal family stops <laughs> existing, then they uh, then yeah. they made a pretty good investment here. Yeah, if we ever if we ever get around to abolishing the monarchy, then we can cash in. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. um, what about so some of this furniture that government already owned and then ended up paying double for so what's the story there well <laughs> complicated story <laughs> um back in 1812 or 1810 something like that louis napoleon became king of holland and he came in this country without any sort of uh, royal history so mm-hmm. he needed a, a palace and he needed to yeah refurbish it refurbish Mm -hmm. it so uh, he ordered a lot of these pieces of furniture on the government's expenses and filled his palace with with it and later King William I became king and he basically did the same and um, but these pieces were of course inherited by the other um, the the later members of the royal family and Mm -hmm. it basically became their possession so it didn't yeah even though it was actually bought by the government uh, it was you know their possession so yeah. when the government bought these pieces of furniture again in, in the 1970s and the 1980s they actually paid double for it because the 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 royal family never actually paid for these pieces of furniture right. now the question is that that was not all that was only a small part of the 
of the whole collection but still mm -hmm. there are some pieces that are um, uh, you know the government paid double for and this question arose in the 1970s and the 1980s as well uh, what do we do about the pieces that were never actually bought by the royal family and um, what the what they did the government and the royal family they appointed a commission who had to determine which pieces of furniture uh, belong to the royal family or not and what I think happened that's not what what the NSA Handelsblatt article says but they saw these hundreds and hundreds of patient pages of mm. of inventory yeah and they thought okay this is just too much work yeah uh, <laughs> let's just say that the entire palace of uh, in Amsterdam yeah. is owned by the government right. except the the paintings and the gifts and all the other pieces of furniture in all the other palaces that's privately owned right so they basically did a lazy job <laughs> yeah and uh yeah instead of uh you know doing a very um they didn't go did detail meticulous uh inventory they, they, they didn't go through it line by line they just yeah yeah they just decided they cut, cut corners this exactly. yeah exactly yeah. this group yeah. of furniture that's privately so yeah they did just did a slob, sloppy job yeah um, yeah, but as I said, it's uh, it's only a small part of the uh, of the collection, so it doesn't really matter, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, was there a response from uh, uh, any politicians from uh, the, from the prime minister or any of the government uh, on uh, you know, on how much this is all costing? Well, the Tweede Kamer was, of course, outraged and wants an inquiry. Or mm -hmm. I don't know what. Another inquiry. We have a lot of inquiries. Yeah, there's this lots week. of inquiries going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mark um, Rutte, of course, the prime minister, was asked what he uh, thought about uh, the article. And he basically said that, um, he literally said, uh, I don't understand it, but I'm sure everything <laughs> is fine. He, yes. uh, he also said that the, uh, the, the financing of the royal family is very complicated, as we saw. Yeah. That was, it was meant to be very complicated. Yeah, it was deliberately complicated. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it was deliberately complicated to try and stop it becoming a kind of political, uh, a source of political opheth, which is ironic because that's now exactly what it's become. Exactly. But in that time... <laughs> I, yeah, there weren't uh, uh, government officials didn't leak everything, and not everything mm. was you know traceable on the inter internet stuff like yeah. that. So yeah, di different times. Back yeah. then it was probably a, a very good uh, strategy, but now it, it isn't anymore. Yeah. Uh, but Margaret later said the day after that that he is uh, uh, going to um, do an inquiry about the the mm -hmm. royal finance uh, anyway. So uh, yeah, we, we will have to wait and see what what comes out of there. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the the interesting thing is that. Um, when Willem Alexander became king in 2013, he uh, wanted to avoid these kind of uh, discussions. So yeah. um, they did an effort to really make the royal funding and financing very transparent. Yeah. But apparently they still didn't uh, do a very good job. Yeah. yeah, obviously. Yeah, and and, and some and, and all the um. Uh, documents and the memos between ministers that went on in the 1970s they're all kept secret at the time but now they've been published and they're in the national archive which is of how this became uh, a story isn't it so yeah uh, the story actually broke or the, the writer of this uh, the journalist who wrote this article came at the idea when he was walking around uh, the Rijksmuseum mm. and they had a uh, one of these Japanese cabinets on display yeah. and uh, he knew that it was previously privately owned by the royal family but yeah. all of a sudden it said that it was part of the royal collection which yes. is you know the the public part of the collection. Yeah. So he thought, what is going on here? So he uh, wrote a letter to uh, one of the ministries, and they uh, didn't reply for two months. But mm -hmm. when they replied, they mm -hmm. said, yeah, there is one of the parties involved 
doesn't want to cooperate. So we right. turned this into a WOP versuch, a, um, uh, a freedom of information request. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is strange that the yeah. ministry <laughs> is used as using this law, which is typically used by journalists yes. in order to, to get, get information, information from, government. from yeah. the government. Yeah. yeah. So that was when this journalist thought something is going Something's on here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he dug into it and he did an excellent job. But yeah. to be honest, I don't think it's that's important. I mean, it, it all makes sense that that these sort of it is I, th- I think yeah when you break it down it's kind of yeah the, the state decided to acquire and take ownership of the furniture and then it's kind of logical it, the state also becomes av- uh, liable for the costs of maintaining it because it belongs to the state so yeah why wouldn't you yeah there, there's obviously some sort of slightly sloppy accounting going on exactly but, um, yeah definitely yeah and it, it, it perhaps is there's obviously a case for trying to simplify the system somehow so it's more transparent but yeah it doesn't strike me as a major scandal if you have a monarchy if you have a royal family and every time people are asked do you want to have the royals they say yes you've got to, you know you can't really be surprised that it costs you money it's, it's an inherently expensive thing exactly you know, yeah. and uh, yeah. they live in palaces they have expensive ornate decorative furniture uh, yeah it, and the bills mount up it's, but do, do you it's think we avoidable really do you think the government should have paid for the ping pong uh, sets should they pay for the ping pong sets well it was 10 it was 10 guilders <laughs> so that's a pretty good price I think. yeah it was a pretty good price yeah, yeah I agree yeah, so, I, th- I think they shouldn't that's okay but I think that people should have the right to go and use the royal table tennis bats you know like there should be a day a year when the, the, the royal the royal games room is open to the public and everyone just go and play ping pong for free or, or, or when you are staying on a camping and you forgot your ping pong bats that you can yeah. just call some government uh, yeah, service exactly. and it will bring you you, you you just phone the royal court and say I've lost my ping pong bats can I have the kings please because they actually belong to the state yes can yeah. I borrow it yeah that will be an excellent yeah. uh, excellent system I think yeah <laughs> We should uh, we should uh, ask uh, Rutte what he thinks about this. Yeah, or Rutte and uh, Willem Alexander should just play ping pong for the right for who owns the bats. Whoever wins the whoever wins the match gets to keep them. <laughs> I would pay to see this actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but seriously, I think yeah, these scandals always, always crop up from time to time about how much the royal family costs the state. But uh, it's kind of you know it's in the nature of the beast. You know, a royal family is always going to a monarchy is always going to cost you a lot of money. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. Uh, You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. You'll earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast uh, if you do so. My thanks to Molly Krull and Paul Peters. I'm Gordon Darroch and we'll be back next week. (music) Thank <music> you.